I'm WFAE's David Borax, and this is R&D in the QC. Tarek Bakari and Larkin Eggleston, one Republican and one Democrat who bonded as first-term Charlotte City Council members. Somehow, they both got re-elected, and now we're stuck listening to another season of this amateur hour bullshit. In the first 82 episodes, they talked to a governor, a senator, presidential candidates, and even a journalist or two. Their goal again this season, bringing Charlotte listeners behind the scenes of the city council in one of America's fastest-growing cities. I won't be listening, but for some reason, you are. Episode 110 of R&D in the QC. We said we'd be back weekly. We haven't been, but we're back now, and that's better than nothing. Boo, 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 boo. What's that sound effect I'm looking for? <laughs> yeah, that, was actually not, that was actually not the worst impression you could have done of it. Okay. It's, uh, it's like the reggaeton air horn. Boo, 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 boo. I know you have a soundboard over there. You should just actually download that sound. No, that's more like a mystery theater. Got it. Got it. I'll do that. That's a great idea. I'll, I'll put that um, on the to-do list. Although I'm concerned that you would abuse that sound effect. I definitely would. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, we let's keep this brief. That. Let's keep this one brief. Brief okay. episode. Bam. Just, In and out. Just like we always say we will. Mm-hmm. Um I also have questions we can ask offline about this new fixation you have with always being on a, having a Rubik's cube in your hand when we're on Zooms. It's it's my new thing. It's it's a it's like a fidget uh, spinner for me. I now. get that. My question is, will I ever see you solve it? Because it never seems to get any closer to actually being completed. Okay, then that is the challenge of today's episode. When you start speaking, I'll stop paying attention and start focusing on this. We've yeah. already lost four viewers just talking about a Rubik's cube. I agree. All right. So, uh, lots of stuff has happened since our last episode because uh, we haven't gotten around to recording a new episode. We apologize. Uh, As we probably discussed on one of the last two episodes, uh, with the resignation of our colleague James Mudgy Mitchell, uh, there was a vacancy that was filled by Greg Phipps about, I'm going to say, two and a half weeks ago. Um, So, he is back on the council now after a brief hiatus. Um, I think that the decision around that has been discussed at length. Um, We had a lot of great candidates and I know there were some folks who um, hoped we'd go in a different direction. I certainly respect that opinion and I think there were some other great options. Um, Phipps was the choice. We we are moving forward with that. Um, One of the other relevant things that came from the departure of Mr. Mitchell was that he was the chair of our and I always get the new name wrong, but what it used to be called the Economic Development Committee. So you have to remind us what it's called now, but you were his vice chair and you have now been elevated to the chairmanship of that committee. So remind us the new name and uh, tell us about how you're going to develop our economy. Well, it is the Business and Workforce Development Committee, very much more specific. One of the reasons for that change, actually, that the mayor made uh, a couple of years ago was because it used to be referred to the e- as the ED committee. And there was this real big focus on deals, right? And deals are, are a good part of it where we recruit businesses and things like that. And we, we try to, uh, you know, expand economic impact and, and things like Eastland, but that's really not the right place uh, or focus for the committee. The committee should be focused more on policy and, um, and, and kind of vision and things like that. So, that's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on that. And I'm looking forward to it. And I'll say one thing, um, a lot of folks would say, well, how would a Republican get uh, appointed to that in the city? 
Um, and I, I attribute one, uh, a lot of thanks and, and appreciation to the mayor for taking that leap of faith who will take most of the arrows. But I also thank nearly all of my colleagues that I spoke with before I went to the mayor and, and asked if this was something she'd consider, who also were very supportive. So I, I just find that that now this is in my wheelhouse directly. I love it. I'm willing to do the work and I'm excited, but I'm not taking that lightly. And my approach is very much one of let's um let's collaborate, particularly with the majority party and be, you know, have open lines of communication to make sure I'm not just off executing my will, but you know, I'm, I'm also a conduit to try to have better lines of updating and reporting and progress for what everyone else wants as well. Two, two side notes on that. One is it's arguably the least partisan of our committees, I would think, in terms of the things that you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. um, two, unlike what people are accustomed to when you talk about chairmanships in Raleigh or Washington, um, if there's some initiative of the council and, and again, you and I aren't experts on, on Raleigh or Washington and exactly how the committees work, but generally speaking, you, you hear about things going to a committee and the chair won't allow them to come up for a vote in Washington or something. That's not really how committees work at a local level anyway. There's not going to be some priority of the city that you decide you don't want to come up and it just gets squirreled away on the back burner for a year. So, you know, I, I think it's probably less likely that a decision like that would be made in, in Congress or in the state legislature. Um, but there's also a certain level of control that those committee chairs have. We certainly have input as chairs of certain committees about um, things that we might want to see come up or uh, in leading the discussions on some of those things, but it's not like, you know, you're not killing a bill that comes into your committee just because you don't want to hear it. It's certainly uh, less power as it, as it relates to the power brokering, but uh, you, I think, uh, above anyone else can associate with that as the chair of what has arguably been for the last year, one of the most controversial items. It's almost more like if you're going to be successful at this, you, your job is collaboration. It's, it's, it's just brokering 15 yeah. different perspectives to come up with in as few steps, the thing that makes everyone somewhat happy um and and that so whatever you want to do in your committee you still got to get three votes you got to get your vote and two others to do it um and then you still got to get the six on council so um no i mean you've, you've done the work there i think it was well deserved and um thank you so, yeah thank you that's the only compliment you can uh assume, should assume you're going to get from me today okay um all right so we got two big topics and we decided instead of trying to play catch up on 20 little things that uh have gone on since our last episode, we'd focus on the two things that as we sit here on Friday afternoon, um, the 19th of February, are front and center, I think, in a lot of people's minds. And we'll start off with um, maybe uh, arguably the less consequential to the community of the two, um, though I think it has big impacts, which is that there is now, we have been told from the Census Bureau, we will not get the data that we and nearly 40 other communities in the state of North Carolina, municipalities that hold Over elections 40. based on districts um, need to do the redistricting that we are legally required to do before our next election until September 30th. Normally we would get that information from the Census Bureau, which obviously every 10 years we have a census. We would get that information in March. So next month we would have the redistricting done. It has to legally be done three days before the filing period opens, which on a normal schedule this year would have been in July. Uh, and then you have a primary in September, a general election in November. We aren't getting the data until September 30th. 
And I imagine what they mean by that is that'd be the earliest we're getting it. Hopefully we get it then. Um, and then to turn around the redistricting maps, um, to have a filing period, to have a primary, we have now been legally advised, not only by our own attorneys at the city, uh, but from talking to people at a state level and other municipalities, uh, that there's probably no legal remedy for this uh, other than moving our election to 2022. And I just don't know, I don't know how, we're gonna have a tall task, I think, to convey all of that information to the, the masses so that there is an understanding that this is not something we are choosing to do, but something that where our hand has been forced. And I've said from the beginning, when you and I started kind of sort of thinking that we could have a problem here a month or two ago, I said the optics of us having to be a part of a decision whereby we effectively extend our terms for a year, uh, this would lead to a 2022 election where we'd be in the same cycle and sync as the county and state legislature and Congress. We'd be running for one year terms in 2022 and have to run again in 2023. It's, it's very strange and I think it will create a lot of confusion. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think there's, there's there's so much. Did you did you read Steve Harrison's uh, piece today in his email newsletter? His, his email blast. I saw it, but I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I was like, I glanced at it, it and I was like, oh wait a minute, this is about me. <laughs> what was the gist of it? it? It was of the extension. It was is this the end of Republicans in Charlotte? And is D six and seven me and Ed now just going to be done after this? with the thought being that because even your turnouts are higher, that it would make it harder for a Republican to win. And there's, you know, I've had this conversation with not that specific conversation, but the conversation about if these elections get bumped to 22, all of the different impacts it could have. And I think it's really hard to determine, um, you know, in one breath I said, well, does, does a higher turnout mean that folks are electing people who are maybe more centrist or, Maybe it's the opposite. Does it mean they're electing, you know, are more Republicans turning out? It, the transit tax that we discussed, I think, on the last episode, the Charlotte Moose stuff, uh, that cannot be held by itself in November of 2021. So that would go either into the primary or the general. Uh, that's not that's not a foregone conclusion at this point. It's more than likely, but it's not a foregone okay. conclusion. Well, I've, I've heard it's it's mostly a foregone conclusion, but assume that it moves to 2022 as well. And, and the school board would also be moving with us to 2022, even though they don't uh, they're nonpartisan. They don't have a primary, but they do have districts. Um, then, you know, what's the calculus on the transit tax? Does it fare better in a primary or in a general? Whenever you have it, it's going to drive voters to turn out who are both for it and against it. I mean, so there's all these weird calculations in how our elections being in an even year, the transit tax being there either in a primary or general. It's, I, I don't know. I mean, I think anyone you could guess and you could think of a hundred different ways it could have some impact. And maybe it means Republicans can't win six and seven, or maybe it means they can, maybe the Republican turnout's bigger because of a transit tax. And suddenly somebody could be competitive at large. I have no idea. Um, I do know that uh, one of our, our friends and representatives, Jason Sane from Lincoln County is on right now. So I will make the plea to him that I have, have uh, said a couple of times to, in some comments on Facebook to, different legislators. I really think that for, and this is not just big cities, though it, it affects several of us, it is smaller towns too. For the municipalities that have this challenge, I really think we'd be better off 
if we could get some sort of a, it's not a remedy, but I think input from the state government where they say, let's get all the, the municipalities that are affected by this on the same page. Let's all agree what the best course of action is because I think if we try to decide it in a vacuum, it's gonna be spun as, you know, we are trying to override the will of the voters or we don't wanna face election or whatever. I'd rather this election be held in 2021 to be quite honest with you. I don't, I don't see much benefit in for us in delaying it. And then also having to immediately start running again in 2023 after we get elected, and if we get elected in 2022. So- Well, I'm sure and also this. now that you're fully launched and ready to roll, like you're like many of the other straight up candidates who are trying to come in that are not current incumbents that want to run. So, I mean, like those are the group, those are the folks that are probably the most annoyed out of all this, yourself being partially included there. And, and Ken just weighed in on the Facebook Live and, and pointed out that we go from basically being the top of the ticket to being the bottom of a long ballot. And, and that's why we're completely, I, it's my opinion, while maybe there's some anomaly here, like Republicans, there's not many scenarios by which we win here. It, it, and, and I think Ed had a good comment in Steve Harrison's piece, which is like, we need to make the right decision regardless of how it impacts us, because the right decision is not doing it in 2021. Like there's no scenario unless they come out and say, you're going to get this data earlier that we can have September 30th results one day, which normally at hyperspeed takes one month, redraw all the districts and then have an open filing period, filing, <laughs> close, primary and general all in. And we have to have primaries. The school board doesn't. Um, I was talking to your friend in Raleigh um, on the Raleigh Council, Nicole, mm. and um, we were just kind of comparing notes. And I, what I didn't realize, I guess I, I wasn't paying attention, I should have, is that I assume they're in the same boat because they have districts, but they're nonpartisan. I didn't realize that. But even so, even if you cut out the primary, still, still, can't still got it. a redraw, open filing and close filing, and then have enough time for campaigning and the general. And that's that all would have to happen in one month. So it's just it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think that's hit a lot of people's radars. Um, one side question is this, by the way. The implications are, are wild because you think about, I mean, think about everything from, you know, how much harder it will be to, to raise money when so many other elections are going on, how much harder it will be to get volunteers and campaign managers and, and campaign staff when there's congressional races that they could be working on or state legislative races. I mean, we're used to alongside the school board who, um, are arguably less expensive and, and somewhat lower profile races or, or maybe have less of an infrastructure around the campaigns than a council race or a mayor's race. We're all there is. I mean, there might be a referendum on the ballot, there's school board, there's mayor and there's council. That's it. Now you're talking about county commission, school board, city council, state house, state senate, a U.S. Senate race, which is going to have very competitive primaries. You're not quite there. There's a green and the orange and an orange and the red, but you're very close. Um, he's, for our audio listeners, he's playing with a Rubik's cube, and I challenged him to actually solve the Rubik's cube, which I've yet to see him do. Um, and and again, if you've got a Pat McCrory versus Laura Trump versus Mark Walker Republican U.S. Senate primary, well done, sir. He solved the Rubik's cube, and you've got a Jeff Jackson, Sherry Beasley, Erica Smith Democratic primary. You know. Everything that we'll be doing will just be different. And it'll be really strange for those of us who only run in odd years. You know, are the price of digital ads going to go up because 
Jeff Jackson, Sherry Beasley, Pat McCrory, and Laura Trump are buying them all. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. The answer yes. probably yes. All of that and more. And it's so the only two questions in my mind at this point, uh, and the third question being implied of will Charlotte have any Republicans when this is all said and done, which I think the answer could very, very well be no. But the, 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 the tactical questions that are left are would we, can we, should we still have a referendum on uh, the Charlotte Moves transit stuff? And two, should we go to 2022 normal cycle or figure out some way in which like we do a January primary and a March general that aligns with the March primary for 2022? That's the only two things to really discuss at this point. I prefer that, although again, let's say- you know How much you, that's gonna cost? It's gonna be- when, And could you even do it? Because you're still only talking about October, November, December to redistrict have a filing period and then have a primary. So even then it'd be it'd a really be compressed massively low turnout. Like it'd be really <laughs> compressed. It would cost additional taxpayer money to hold an extra election. Um, although I guess that would be negated by the election. We wouldn't be holding in 2021. I, I just don't know. And then. What a know, cluster. I don't know. It, it is definitely a cluster. And then, so let's assume that, that it plays out the way that maybe there's Steve Harrison speculating it might, which is, you and Ed are gone. Well, then there's another election immediately afterwards in 2023. Does the door open back up for you and Ed to be more competitive in 23? Or does that momentum of y'all losing those seats mean that they're gone forever? I, they're, they're, so they're, many sneaking, they're sneaking away from us slowly over every cycle, right? So I, I don't know that it's losable depending on the candidate as quickly as 2023. But it's certainly worse in 2023 than it was in 2021, and and at some well, point it just hits that that no return. And point. if you're running as an outsider instead of an incumbent, it's a disadvantage to you as well. Yep. If you're trying to come back. So anyway, you could get you could game out a hundred thousand different ways that this could have impacts on our races, and you know, and hurt you or help you. Or, and, and the fact of the matter is, we just don't know. Tarek now for our audio listeners is doing like David Copperfield magic tricks with a nickel, which I've not actually seen in real life. So it could just be like uh, some sort of, I don't know. I'm a magician now too. So for our audio listeners, we do Facebook lives. You can find them on Tarek's Facebook page or mine. And, and I do the, magic there. And at the approximately 19 minute mark, if you'd like to go see Tarek's magic trick, you can find it. I have to amuse um, myself. What's next? All right. Anything else on that or? No, it's, it's okay. just, it's, it's, it's a bad situation. We're getting an update. We're getting an updated council meeting on Monday. And I, I think we could be actually considering a decision on Monday, which. I, There's no decision. Our decision is paused until we figure out if Raleigh's going to make a decision for us all. Gotcha. which is what the hope is that that would be preferable and again i think having because it wouldn't be a matter of if it would be a matter of when and how many legal challenges would be filed if we tried to hold elections under the old lines yep. because it would it's, it's fairly black and white from what we're being advised legally that would be unconstitutional if you've you've gotten to the point of a census and you don't balance the districts out so that they're mostly equal with each other it violates the one person one vote um, yep. concept. So, all right. Um, the other big one we'll touch on, 
and then we'll call it a day. But yeah. um, and this one will probably take a little longer. Obviously, the, the lead story this week has been the decision on Tuesday um, to issue an abatement order around Tent City. Tent City, as everybody's well aware, is a very visible and very large homeless encampment that has cropped up over the last 11 months or so, um, primarily along the 12th Street corridor from Davidson to Graham Street, more or less. Um, it's, it's proximate to a lot of the service providers like Urban Ministry Center, the Men's Shelter of Charlotte. Um, and it has grown and at different times has been, you know, 90 people. It's gotten up to 150, I think. It, it, and most recently, maybe last week, it was around 140 or something. Um, and that's it, what started city and county manager Fight Island this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there was a kerfuffle. So we, we've been having a lot of conversations. There's been a lot of, I think, good dialogue. And, and frankly, this, the, the city and the county have, and, and I know, and I just accept the fact that people are going to say they haven't done anything to help. The city and the county don't care. The fact of the matter is the, the facts just do not bear that out. Uh, the city and the county have invested an immense amount of resources and trying to help. And a lot of what the city's doing is not visible at Tent City because it's doing things like rent relief, utility relief, stuff that is keeping people from becoming homeless. So a lot of our efforts have been, although we've also invested in expanding the Statesville Avenue shelter, which will be completed and open in the next 30 or 60 days, um, we've made a lot of investment. We've made investments in the, the hotel that was bought and converted into emergency shelter for homeless folks. We've made investments in directly uh, trying to help fix this or, or solve this problem at Tent City, but we've also made investments in trying to make sure that there aren't more people being put out on the street and ending up at Tent City by virtue of the fact that, that because COVID that's has more in them. our wheelhouse. We we are more right. on the business side, on the infrastructure side, on the housing side. But like, if we're going to work as a system. Other people are responsible for solving the immediate problem, which was health and human service related. So for anybody who's been out there, you've seen that the, the trash, um, the, the general sanitation of, um, of this area has just gotten worse and worse and worse. Um, and honestly, and this is a tough conversation to have because it, especially with the people that need to hear it the most, one of the biggest challenges we've had is trying to help folks who drive through there and understandably feel compelled to do something. You can't drive through there and not feel compelled to do something. People think I need to help. And for many of us, particularly maybe before you and I were in office and, and just sort of a casual observer of this, or maybe you volunteered in a soup kitchen or you volunteered in a shelter, but you don't really know how to help other than, than those things. Right now during COVID, you can't really do a lot of those things the way that you normally would. So you make a donation online or whatever, but you want to do more. And people are thinking, well, you know what? I'm going to get everyone in my neighborhood to chip in money and I'm going to take a bunch of food down there. Or I'm going to get everybody to give me all of the clothes that they don't need. I'm going to put them in a box and take them down there. And the intent and the motivation behind that is very genuine and very compassionate. But what's happening is when dozens of people a day are dropping off tons of perishable food for approximately 100 people, give or take 30 folks, depending on the week, 
80% of that food is going to waste. It's rotting. It's attracting rats. And this is what led to this abatement order. When people are dropping off clothes, there are people dropping off boxes of children's clothes. There are no children in Tent City. There was someone who dropped off women's dress shoes, like high heels. I can promise you that's not what anyone there needs. Now, if you take those things to crisis assistance ministry, if you take those things to Goodwill, Salvation Army, whatever, they can use it. They can put it to good use, make sure somebody gets it that needs those things. But just dropping things off at Tent City has not only not helped, it's actually created maybe what the biggest problem is down there, which is the sanitation issue. And there are now... And the reason that the county made the decision they made on Tuesday and the, the site had to be vacated by, uh, by five o'clock today and then all the property owners of which city of Charlotte is one uh, have to go about cleaning the site and remediating the health hazard and, and risk um, over the course of the next couple of days once the people are gone. There is a rat problem there that has gotten beyond out of control and that's what the county health director that's what calls her to make the decision to say this camp has to be cleared because now it's not even that COVID is the biggest risk there and it was a risk anyway, um, but it is the diseases that can be transmitted by rats and rat um, feces. That and decision should have been made long ago. Why, why, I, there's, because we can hide behind a very disgusting snowball that built up and built up and built up rats and rodents. And now it had like, uh, the whole point is we all have to operate on all cylinders doing our part to make this happen, to make the issue go away. And there were beds, there was support. And at the end of the day, those roughly a hundred people that then grew from that data point where I had there that were occupying roughly 150 tents. Uh, they, they, they didn't want to go anywhere else. And I'm not, trying to minimize like, no, those places aren't perfect, right? And there are issues and things that that occur that make maybe somebody not want to go there. But the bottom line is like at some point, once we've done all we can, we have to do a little bit of tough love on this front and say that isn't what we're going to allow to blossom because what happens is it becomes a magnet for other things, for other communities dropping people off here, for other, and and, and this is the thing I think you missed. You, you, I agree with just about everything you said, but I think you missed the biggest point people dropping off stuff directly. Um, the worst part of that isn't the, the rodents and the stuff that's there that ultimately led to this. It is that it's a selfish thing. It, it's, it's something that makes me feel better about myself that I did. And either I'm aware and don't care or I'm unaware and, and, and need to be informed is that that's why people that are there. The reason why they congregate in these locations is because all kinds of services and food and clothing and things just show up every day and they have no strings attached. There's no- I think it's more of the latter though. I'll give people the benefit of the doubt. I don't think the- yeah, I think it is nobody. more of the latter. I do. Yeah, I, do. I think it's people that don't, that do think they're helping. And But you don't think over a year that message has somehow permeated to a few of them and they're just like, you know what? I will keep doing this. I really don't. I do think that they're, and it, they're not mutually exclusive necessarily because you do see people doing a live stream showing them dropping off stuff. And part of that is wanting that praise and that self-gratification. But it's not too, even but the external praise. It's even people who like, are like, I, I just, I want to do something for them. And I want to see the people when I hand it to them, when the right answer is all that stuff is needed at the men's shelter, right? It's needed at these places where it forces these folks not to have things delivered to them with no strings attached, but to have to go get them 
because they're hungry, because they're cold, and they have to go get them in a place that has the wraparound services that attempts to solve issues that are preventing them from, from whatever it is that's, that's, that's stopping them from, from being able to have a place normally to live and things like that. And the, and the word that I kept coming back to when at community meetings I'd get asked about or whatever was coordinated, coordinated efforts, the return on your investment of, of whatever it is that you are donating or the money that you're giving, um, the, the impact it has will be greater if you do it with someone who is on the ground there daily, who knows what's needed, who can get it to the people who need it, and can coordinate with the other folks who are, are serving this community. Uncoordinated efforts might be, and I, I assume are well-intentioned, but they are not effective. Um, and in this case, they had a, a they had the counter effect of actually making the situation worse because you have you know clothes that were never going to get used by anybody that are mildewing and, and molding. And I mean, it just it it. Be, it was untenable. And so to your, your original point, which was this should have been done a long time ago, the big linchpin there was that the Center for Disease Control federally had said because of the pandemic, it is recommended that encampments not be cleared. Um, you could argue the, the rationale behind that. I think there was some validity to it and there were some things that I might have disagreed with. Neither you nor are public health experts. But CDC said, don't clear encampments. And that was a big part of the reason that for so long, this was allowed to exist the way that it was, as opposed to pushing people towards accepting the help that was there. And, and to your point, and people said, well, there's nowhere for them to go. There has been somewhere for them to go. We're not saying it's a perfect situation. We're not saying that we don't understand some of the reasons people don't. They are largely driven by mental health challenges, substance abuse challenges, having a pet that they can't take with them, things that you know, we need to be sympathetic to and we need to help folks with. Um, people can't do drugs and alcohol in, in a lot of these settings. And for some of them, that dependency really does not allow them to put themselves in a situation where they cannot. Um, but this is the tough love I'm talking you know, about. That that, unfortunately, when you look at some of the more, and I don't want to paint with the too broad brush, but when you think of our show here and we peacefully talk about the R and D differences of mindset of approach, there just seems like a lack of appetite for any tough love. Like I, for, for me, it's like tough love with a heart, right? But at the, like, I can't, like I, I have been talking about what I think the tough love with the heart solutions are on homelessness and other topics for years now. And the, it's many folks on the D side that are just like, I'm not trying to hear that you're heartless. That's heartless. Why would you clear the, cause I'm like, cause the folks that are there, they want to be there for a bad reason. Like, it's just not your dog, your dependency. I know you like those things, but at the end of the day, I'm sorry, that's not acceptable. Well, and the thing now, there, there was a petition going around that essentially was saying the county should back off and, and extend the order and allow people to stay in Tent City. Of course, that because that's the soft-minded but approach. I'm saying I would contend that it is, it is cruel and unusual to be lobbying for people to continue living in the in that circumstance. I mean, it was cruel and unusual six months ago. Now that the rats are there, it's like people have an excuse that's like, oh, everyone's grossed out by rats when we should have been grossed out by the, the entire situation from the beginning uh, up from a humanity aspect. The other thing I'll say, and I don't know if there's much more to go into here, but I, I do want people to know, and, and I am always open-minded to um, creative solutions. We don't have all the answers. I, I do want people to realize that 
if some of the things that I see being proposed, if it were that simple, it, it literally would have been done already. And so, you know, when folks say, well, we just need to put them into an apartment or we just need to put them into a job. Again, if you're dealing with as many of these people are for a multitude of reasons, if you're dealing with mental health issues, it might not be as simple as just holding down a normal job. We can't just say, okay, now you go work at this restaurant and you're going to show up every day at 10 a.m. You're going to, if they've got a, if they've got a drug addiction and they've got mental health issues, it's not that simple. There's so many other things we have to help them solve before we can possibly put them in a situation where they can be successful yeah. having an apartment and having a job and having a whatever. You can't just throw them into that. There is a continuum of care. There is a, a, a ladder that we need them to climb. And it starts with putting a, a safe, uh, having a place for them that is safe and warm for them to lay their head at night. And oftentimes, and, and most of the time, that's probably going to be in a shelter setting. So I, you know, I think part of it that, that frustrates some of us who are trying to work on the issue is the idea that it is that simple and we've just not thought of that or we've not been willing to do that. It's not that simple. These folks have challenges on challenges on challenges that if you don't address those first, you're not going to be able to fix the, the but bigger on the other, I agree with you. But on the other side of that coin, I agree. on one side, it is not that simple. On the other, it's not rocket science either. It just takes good, smart strategy that, that, ultimately leads towards a sustainable solution and some grit, some tough love that I think the problem is, it's not that it's not for a lack of smart people that are looking at this. Like if we all sat down and say, you know what, we're going to solve this in a, in a way with a heart that is done, we could get it done. I guarantee you we could get it done if people had the appetite to actually solve it and not either use it as a political prop or say, well, no, I don't want to do anything that would make any of them uncomfortable. Like they're pretty uncomfortable right now. So I guess the, the one other thing that is sort of the elephant in the room would be silly for us not to mention is that um, mm. the way this played out this week is that Tuesday morning, the county manager alerted the city manager that they had made this decision, that uh, the decision would be announced Tuesday afternoon. Uh, and there would be a 72 hours given, which was Tuesday at 5 p.m. to Friday at 5 p.m. Um, for folks to leave. And, and they have the county has a, a hotel room, motel room for every single person. Um, they are transporting them there. There's the wraparound services that you mentioned um, that they can connect them with there. So who everyone's in got a fist some fight. Place to go. Dina Diorio or Marcus Jones fist fight. Like who just wins straight up? Bare, Dina. bare knuckle. Dina. Dina. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I love, you know, I, I love them, but I, I genuinely really, really like both of them. Yeah, uh, agreed. Marcus is wiry. So like he could probably run away, yeah. but I, but I, I don't think he's that scrappy. No, no. Yeah, you're right. I agree. Totally agree. I mean, if you had to get in a fight with one of them, which one would it be? Definitely Marcus. Yeah. Marcus for sure. Yeah. Okay. So you proved my point. Um, I think we could actually raise a lot of money if we make this like, we could get them in those like big inflatable sumo suits or something. We get them to go down there. Once everyone's safely cleared, hu human humanitarian first, we get them to go down there and see who can catch as many rats. No? I think that joke might be a bridge too far. Too far. Come on. See, that's what I'm saying. Softest, man. We care Damn. about it, but we can have a little joke, can't we? we can draw a line somewhere. At rats. Um, so. There was some confusion. Uh, 
the city had agreed to provide transportation assistance in the form of um, buses and drivers. There was some confusion around security that would be on those buses. And on Thursday morning, the county manager had a press conference uh, where she expressed very plainly some disappointment and frustration with both the city manager, the police department, her, I mean, I say her own sheriff, it's the Mecklenburg County Sheriff, although he is elected, he, he is, she is not his boss, but they get funding from the county. As we saw in their interaction after her press conference. Um, so there was a lot of back and forth statements in her press conference, uh, press releases issued by all of the people that I just mentioned and, and Charlotte Fire Department um, that, that basically made it look like there is, is no coordination going on here amongst all of these entities. What I will say is I have been a part of a lot of the interagency conversations that have been going on between the county and Roof Above and Salvation Army. And um, there has been a lot of cooperation. And I think, you know, Dina and Gibby, the county health director, got to a point where they felt like this decision had to be made. I'm not going to second guess that decision because Gibby is the public health expert. I am not. And then I think. I applaud that. I applaud that. The communication should have been better from that point so that everybody was on the same page. And I have no doubt that there is blame to go around for all of us. Um, I'm certainly not laying it in anybody's lap. And if there were one job in over the course of the last year that I would not want to have, it would be Gibby Harrison's job as public health director. Um, COVID on top, you know, 10 city on top of COVID on top of whatever else. She has had the hardest job in this community over the course of the last year. Um, I don't envy their position. It was unfortunate because that became, I think, a bigger part of the news story than the necessity of connecting the people in Tent City to the services and the help that they need. And that work is being done. And I think the county is doing a pretty good job of it. But what became the story was a spat between the two managers who have an otherwise good working relationship. Um, or did. <laughs> uh, I think they'll get past it. And, and again, I, I understand why everyone's frustrated, emotions are high, um, but it was unfortunate that that became maybe the lead as opposed to what really is genuinely a, human, a humanitarian crisis. With all the touch points they have and the, the gray area between city and county, um, I do believe that the, uh, the productivity of the, a strong relationship between those two roles is very important because when those two get together, it's because the staffs and the divisions between each of the organizations couldn't figure something out and they're trying to figure it out. And, and that's just so critical. So I do hope this was just a bit of a heated moment. I, I am just a bit bewildered that, you know, everyone should have known the minute that order was made, it was going to be a political football, of course. So like you, you make extra sure you've got all your bases covered, like no kind of if, ands or buts or loose ends left. Um, because if you're at a point where you're essentially expressing frustration or blame rightly or wrongly so and you're doing a toss under the bus action like something got too far well yesterday everybody ended up under the bus um but uh and it did it, it did inevitably and predictably lead to um renewed calls for consolidation so i don't, I don't know if you saw that online but um that'll never happen the mayor pro tem actually even tweeted yesterday. She said, 
all something like all the more reason for consolidated government, um, which is not, I don't think, a shot at any person or entity. I think it's literally just a, if, if we were one government, it would be hard for us to not be, we'd be on the same page with ourselves. Um, and when we are two separate governments, oftentimes we are not. And it's to the detriment. I totally of agree with that. I just, I'm saying like, Everyone wants to be a, everyone wants a solid acquisition. No one wants to be acquired. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, and which, uh, is it the SunTrust or the BBNT CEO who gets to be CEO? Exactly. You could be CEO Uh, for us. In their case, it was both in, in succession, but, um, I don't know if that would work in this scenario. So So, yeah, I think, uh, I think there is some logic behind that argument, but the argument has been made for the entirety of the time you and I have both lived here and um, it hadn't happened and it probably ain't going to happen soon. Truth. So anything else before we sign off? That is all I've got, my friend. This obviously went longer than we wanted to every single time it does. Yeah. That's how it works when you get two people together who like to talk. I'm exhausted though. I'll tell you that. Well, you go get you some rest. I will. Thank you. Pop you open a pop you open a white claw and just stretch out on the couch and, and have some you time. Consider it done, my friend. All right. All right. We'll Until talk to y'all time. whenever we do another one of these. See you next month.